We turn tonight to the gospel according to John, John chapter 6, John 10, and then later I like to quote from John 17. So John chapter 6, first of all, in connection with the truth summarized in the canons of Dort concerning, as the heading says, the second main point of doctrine, Christ's death and human redemption through it, more popularly known in the acronym of TULIP as limited atonement, turning from the unconditional election to limited atonement this evening. John chapter 6, put in the bulletin beginning at verse 35. It might be helpful to begin, I think, at verse 29. John 6, as we cut into this discourse of Christ with the Jews, John 6, verse 29 We read, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet yet do not believe All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then we turn to chapter 10 of this gospel, John chapter 10, to begin our reading at verse 7 down through verse 18. John 10 at verse 7, then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, And am known by my own, 
As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Then if you would turn into our Forms and Prayers book to the Canons of Dort, specifically to page 267 and 268, page 267, turn there first of all to remind you that each positive section, each chapter or main point is followed by a section of rejection of errors. And so on page 266, you can see the concluding parts of the rejection of errors regarding that first head of doctrine about election. And now we're turning to the second main point of doctrine, Christ's death and human redemption through it. And I'd like to skip all the way to Article 8. And then, because that's really where the issue of limited atonement or particular redemption comes up, and uh, the previous articles are sort of clearing the ground and taking away some things that people think are obstacles to that. So I'd like to read Article 8, and then tonight and the weeks ahead to work in the other articles. But Article 8, the saving effectiveness of Christ's death, on page 268. For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God, the Father, that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all his chosen ones in order that he might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death, that he should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. So the church confesses. Let's bow and ask for God's help, shall we? Our gracious God in heaven, as we come again to these deep and profound subjects of your word, we pray and for your mercy to us, to guide our thinking in ways that are righteous and helpful, to take away false fears and to bring us comfort by the gospel. We pray that we might understand the truth of your word so that Christ would be honored in the things we believe, in the things we confess, and in the things that we sing. And we pray then you would help to conform our mind to your word and that you would also visit our hearts tonight to strengthen our faith in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We come this evening to what is the most controversial of the so-called five points of Calvinism, the most disputed of the so-called doctrines of grace. It's this thing that we sometimes call limited atonement because it works well with the TULIP acronym, but that language is a, a bit misleading. And so many prefer the language of definite atonement or particular redemption. And the teaching is that God sent his son to die, to save, particularly these and these only, the ones whom he had chosen from eternity. That Christ went to the cross with this purpose to redeem, to effectively redeem the ones the Father who had predestined before time. That Christ's death on the cross was not designed to save every person in the world, but it was designed to save that great multitude from all peoples and nations, those ones the Father had in his good pleasure, based upon nothing good in them but for his own good pleasure and love had chosen to save. And this is the most disputed point, we know, because there are some people who want to embrace most of these points, but but call themselves four-point Calvinists, and this is the point that they can't come to terms with. The other points, unconditional election, total depravity, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints, they want to embrace, but they just can't believe that Jesus' death on the cross was for the elect alone. And they wonder such things, as the canons took up in the earlier articles, can't we How would we then preach the gospel to all people if perhaps somebody we're preaching to is not one for whom Christ died? Today we need to see, however, that this is the clear teaching of Scripture, that Jesus Christ came to redeem the elect of God. And the reason that limited atonement is not such good language is because it seems to focus our attention upon the number that Jesus died for, and that's not the point. The point is is not a quantitative thing. How many people did Jesus die to save? That's not the point. But But the point is this, what does Christ's death accomplish? Did Jesus come just to make salvation available for all people, or did he come to actually save some people? Did he come to make us savable, and if we'll take this final step and somehow bring ourselves to God, then we can be saved, or did Christ actually come to save, to rescue you see, the, the debate here, the, the teaching, it's all about the value and the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Did he come only to pay for sins or did he come to purchase for us the application of redemption, the gift of faith, the power of the Spirit, the gift of a new heart? You see, that's the issue. And we want to look at that, especially in the, the coming weeks, about the saving efficacy of Christ's death that he actually saves. But I'd like tonight to begin to work towards that by looking at the harmony of the Father and Son in the work of salvation, the the perfect unity of Father and Son in this work of redemption. What was the intention of the Father in sending his Son to the cross? What was the intention of the Son in going to the cross? Did they have the same intention? Tonight we see in John 6 and John 10 that the Father and Son are united in their intention to redeem the elect, the chosen of God. And it's evident because Christ makes glorious statements. 
The first one, he says that he has come to do his Father's will. And so Christ declares to us his purpose as one with the Father. And then he says that the ones he comes to save are the ones the Father has given him. And so he shows us that his people are the Father's people. And then thirdly, he says he comes to lose none that the Father has given him. And so we see Christ's pledge that he has come to do all that the Father has sent him to do. And so those are the three things we want to look at tonight. Christ's purpose, Christ's people, and Christ's pledge. Now tonight and in the weeks ahead, we always have to keep in mind the, the marvelous unity of Father, Son, and Spirit in their work and in all their work. We confess that there's but one Lord God. We worship one God, one true and eternal God. And though the Bible reveals him as a three-person God, and the Athanasian Creed says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, we should, of course, expect that the three persons of the Godhead are completely united in the work they do in this world. If the Father and Son each had their own plans and their own purposes, and each went their own way, well, it's inconceivable, isn't it? We, we wouldn't have the God of Scripture anymore if the three persons of the Godhead were all doing their own different thing. We wouldn't have one God any longer. But the God of Scripture is a perfect unity and a perfect plurality, one in three and three in one. And though the Bible reveals that the Father is the primary actor, the principal agent in creation and in planning all things and in election, and the Son is the principal agent in redemption, he in human flesh dies on the cross, and the Spirit is the primary actor in the work of sanctification, Yet the Father and Son and Spirit are all involved in all of those works, and they never work at cross-purposes with each other. They, in terms of the being of the Godhead, there's a perfect unity, a perfect fellowship. There always has been from all eternity. And in terms of the work then of creation and the work of redemption, Father, Son, and Spirit are, are all together bound as one in this. And why is that so important tonight? Well, because we're moving from election, the Father decreeing whom he will save, choosing, predestining some out of all sinners whom whom he's chosen to save. We're moving now to the work of redemption, the work of the Son to save those ones. And we're asking the question, are are the ones Jesus comes to save on the cross the same ones the Father chose? And the answer is yes. Yes, indeed. I've been looking at that wonder of unconditional election that declared in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Or or Romans 8, those God foreknew or foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. But having seen that, as God now sends his Son into the world to execute the Father's plan, what do we expect? the Son of God from heaven to do? Is it possible that although God has chosen to save some sinners and them alone, that Jesus Christ comes into the world to do something entirely different? That Jesus says that my Father's decree was too narrow. I'm going to die differently. He chose to save some, but I will die for all. Well, the answer is, of course not. In the world of men, that kind of thing happens, but not in the triune Godhead. 
In the world of men, it's rather common, isn't it? Maybe you know stories, I know stories of, of businesses where the father who started the business had one plan, but the son who takes over the business has quite a different plan. I know of some retail stores that used to be closed on Sunday, but now they're open on Sunday. And what I've been told is that if the father who started the business had known what his sons were going to do, he would be quite upset. Maybe we've been in the midst of that where a father dealt so kindly with his customers and he was loved, but his sons now, hungry for money, are not so fair and just. Maybe you've seen it where a father and son don't see eye to eye. Maybe you've seen it where a father gives to his sons a business, but they can't cooperate together. We see these kinds of things all the time, don't we? In fact, probably... Most all companies you'd research, you'd discover that they have moved far off from, from the original vision of what it was, the father who started it. Those kinds of things happen in the world of men, but they never happen in the world of the triune Godhead. The Son and the Father and the Spirit agreed from eternity how this would go. The Father would send his Son. The Son would come to execute the plan of the Father, and the Spirit would bring it all to perfection by applying it. And Jesus Christ wants us to know that, and so he says in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Perfect obedience, perfect submission, he has come to execute the Father's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, the, the writer quotes the psalmist, putting these words in the mouth of Jesus. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book it is written of me. Come to do your will, O God. And then a few verses later, Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will Christ came to do is our salvation, isn't it? Actually, in the canons, Articles 1 and 2 talk about the great need for, for the justice of God to be satisfied. This is our great trouble in this world that we've offended the infinite majesty of God and sin must be paid for. But Christ has come to make satisfaction for our sins. That's why the Father sent his Son. So Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So if we can clearly see in the scriptures, as we've been looking at the past weeks, that God chose to save a definite number of sinners. And then we can see clearly the Father sent the Son to redeem them. then we either, unless we believe what we confess in the canons tonight, we would either have to reject the teaching of election or we'd have to allege a disunity and disharmony among the persons of the Godhead. But Christ doesn't lead us there. Christ says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, isn't that great? 
and comforting for us tonight as the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. Know that we're not caught between two different wills. None of us like to be in that position, do we? You don't like to work at a place where, where two different supervisors have a different plan for your life and you're conflicted. Children don't like to live in a home where mom and dad have gone to war against each other. And now there's this, who should I love or who should I choose? And isn't it good tonight to know that our God is a, a God of perfect love and perfect fellowship and perfect unity in all of his work. And we're not caught in the middle between the Father and the Son. We don't find our comfort in doing that. Have you ever been tempted to play off one person of the Godhead against another person? Maybe children sometimes are tempted to play off mom against dad or dad against mom. Now, in our current context, maybe it's always been this way throughout church history in New Testament times, that that rarely does anybody think the Father is more loving than the Son. But there have been many who have thought that the Son is more loving than the Father. And they've interpreted the work of Jesus as thinking that Christ comes to make the Father love us. That Jesus came to do this work on the cross so that the Father would begin to love us, which is a complete heresy. The teaching of the Bible is that God so loved that he sent his Son. There's a perfect unity in the Father's love and the Son's love. It's not as some have pictured it as the Father is stern or harsh and the Son is loving. But the Father loves us and the Son loves us and the Holy Spirit loves us. And so there's this wonderful unity. Jesus says in John 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. And then we didn't read it, but verse 30 says, I and my Father are one. So there's a great unity of purpose. But then secondly tonight, notice that there's a unity concerning the people. Christ's people are the ones the Father has given him. Christ does not only come to do his Father's will, but he reveals that the, that the will of the Father, he believes the will of the Father that he's come to fulfill is in regard to a very particular people, particular group of people, the ones the Father has given me. And in John chapter 6, Jesus is distinguishing between those who, who refuse to come, who will not believe, and those who've been given to him by the Father. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's a particular people. As Christ comes to do the Father's will, there's no hint of uncertainty as to who the objects are of his redeeming work. It's a very clearly defined group of people. In fact, Later, Jesus will pray in John 17, and he'll, he'll say it over and over. He'll, he'll, he'll say that he's, he's come to give eternal life. You've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And Jesus prays on and on. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. I pray not for the world, but for those you have given me. All are my, all, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. That you'll pray, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. 
Clearly, God has a people. God has a people he's chosen. He's got a people he is donating to Christ. He's giving to the Son. And these are the people that Christ is concerned to redeem. There's this comfort in election that God's love, as we think about election, it's not that God's love is haphazardly thrown like a blanket over all of mankind and God will see who wants to stay under that love or who wants to escape. But it's rather an election that God has chosen to love some and to love them everlastingly. And Christ is coming to redeem those. The ones the Father has given him. So the Father sent his Son. The Son said, I came to do your will. And now we see Christ is saying that your will, in terms of my work, is for a very particular people who have been given to me as my charge. Imagine the absurdity of hiring a babysitter as parents. And parents go out, babysitter stays there, they return. And they come home and they ask the babysitter, how are our children doing And she replies, oh, well, your children? I I don't know. I I thought you just hired me to babysit. And I was outside here, and these other kids wanted to play with me, so I've been playing with them. I'm not sure how your children are. You say, it's absurd. It never happens. A babysitter's hired to care for a particular group of children. And the babysitter, accepting the assignment is accepting that commission to keep, to watch over these children. Same thing with a shepherd in Bible times. Nobody's just hired as a generic shepherd, wander about the hills, and if you see any sheep, you know, try to look out for them. But a shepherd is, is, is entrusted a flock to care for. Those are the sheep. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own, as the Father knows me. Even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must bring also, and there be one flock and one shepherd. Christ the good shepherd is is not some generic shepherd wandering the hills to see if there might be any sheep. But he knows who his sheep are. Jesus tells the Jews in John 6, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Rather, John 10. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The sheep are not those who've distinguished themselves somehow by believing, but they're the ones the Father has has given to the Son, both by his sovereign choice and by bringing them to the Son. And Jesus is not a freelance Savior looking to save whomever Christ decides to save as he comes. Yes, he's, he's sent, isn't he, to seek and to save the lost. He proclaims that. But as he goes to seek and save the lost, he has a list. The list given to him by the Father. 
And it's an amazing thing, isn't it, to have our names upon that list. Why God has chosen any of us, we cannot say. R.C. Sproul, in his book on election, notes that when he was teaching in seminary, many students would, would bring him difficult theological questions, great conundrums. But he says, rarely did anyone ask me the question, why me? Why was I chosen? Sproul says, it seems like sometimes we seem to be thinking, why wouldn't he save me? We are not amazed and humbled by grace. But if we're humbled by grace, then we can be comforted to know that Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has taken responsibility for our souls. Going back to the babysitter illustration, what if the parents came home and the babysitter replied, yeah, your children, I, I, I watched them for a while, but after being with your children, I decided I don't really like them. And so I, I've actually decided not to watch them anymore. The son doesn't do that to his father, does he? He has received from the father the ones the father has given him. He will never reject the ones that God gave him. John Murray, the Westminster professor from years ago, deceased now, writes, If it pleased the father to make a donation to his son, it would violate all proprieties for the son to reject the father's gift. It is divinely impossible for the son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to cast out any person who is the donation, the gift of the father's grace. Christ has received of his Father all the Father has given him, all the elect. And the Redeemer's eyes are upon them. Upon them. Now, Jesus in John chapter 6 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And so no one has to trouble their heart and say, well, maybe I can't come to Christ because maybe I haven't been chosen or maybe Jesus didn't die for me. We have this, this gospel assurance that whoever comes to Jesus will by no means be cast out. Come to Jesus, Christ says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's, that's the gospel summons. And in fact, in the canons, back in Article 5, in fact, entitled Mandate to Proclaim the Gospel to All, We confess it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise together with the command to repent and believe ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. Believing in particular redemption does not limit our proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim to all men, turn to Christ, come to him, and he will not reject you. But we know, of course, that none will will come to Christ but the ones the Father has given. But if you come to Christ, then you know that you are one of those whom the Father has given to the Son. URC Pastor Danny Hyde in his book on the canons of Dort. He writes, but how do I know if the will of God in eternity that was communicated from the Father to the Son and that the Son did was done for me? 
He says, this is why Jesus brings his message home to us. He doesn't only speak of eternity. He speaks to you personally and says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you believe in Jesus? Then be assured that he came to execute that eternal plan of God, which means in that eternal plan the Father spoke your name to the Son, and the Son agreed to come down for you. Amazing, isn't it? If you believe on Christ, you are the elect of the Father. If you're the elect of the Father, you've been given to the Son. If you've been given to the Son, that Christ has owned you as one of his sheep, and he will bring you to heaven. Christ's eyes upon his particular people, his sheep, his flock. And the reason that his redemption, his saving work, is particular is not because Christ's resources were limited. We understand, going back again to the babysitter, while, why she's entrusted with the children of one family and just one family. It's because she's not able to watch the whole neighborhood. She can't be everywhere. She can't bear all the burden. She can't do the job for everyone. And we're not in any way suggesting that it's similar with our Lord Jesus Christ. The issue is not that Christ is unable to save every single person in the world. And we confess earlier in the canons, in Articles 3 and 4, the infinite value of Christ's death. That this death of God's Son is only an entirely, is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. The older theologians used to say that, that Christ's death is so great it could have saved a thousands worlds. And it's of infinite value because it's the death of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God and the perfect righteous man. Why does God choose to save some and not all? We don't know all the reasons to that. We know that God has chosen to manifest both his mercy and his justice. But this is why the word limited atonement isn't so pleasant. Because we would not want anyone to think that the work of our Lord Jesus Christ had some kind of weakness or that kind of limitation about it. It's a work of infinite power. And had God chosen to redeem every soul ever created, Christ would not have had to suffer a minute longer. So we see... Christ's purpose to do his Father's will. We see Christ's people. It's the ones the Father has given him. But finally tonight, notice Christ's pledge that he will lose none the Father has given him. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus, in talking to the hardened Jews in John 6, responds to their words that, that we ate, our fathers ate manna in the desert, suggesting that Moses gave them manna. Jesus says, Moses didn't give you manna, but my father, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When the Father gives his Son, he doesn't give his Son to make salvation a mere possibility, but to give life to the world. To give life to the world. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, Jesus says. And Jesus says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Parents aren't happy with the babysitter if she managed to keep three out of the four kids alive. And the father, the sovereign father, in giving the elect to his son, doesn't say, you know, see if you could do it with 80%. We'll be happy with that. But Jesus says that this is the will of the Father who sent me, that I should lose nothing, not a single one of the names that have been assigned to me, but to raise them up at the last day, to bring them into the glorious presence of God, safely delivered. What a wonder. Canons of Dort in this section speak of the wonder of a church that endures to the end. R.C. Sproul writes, I cannot give a single reason under heaven why God should save me other than, as the prophet Isaiah said, the suffering servant of Israel should see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That God has determined to honor his son by giving him adopted brothers and sisters. Sproul writes, in the final analysis, the only reason I'm a Christian is that the father wants to honor the son. From all eternity, he determined that the son's work would not be in vain and that he would, not, and that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Therefore, he determined not just to make salvation possible and then step back and cross his fingers, hoping that Somebody would take advantage of the ministry of Jesus. No, God the Father from all eternity determined to make salvation certain for those whom he determined to give to his son. As you read the gospel accounts, isn't it a wonder Christ has come to glorify the Father? But the Father has also sent his son to glorify his son and raise him up and give to him a people. The Father's chosen a people for the glory of his name, but he's chosen a people to give to his Son for the glory of the Christ, that he should be the head of the church and be the firstborn among many brethren. And so the Father and the Son are are equally united in this, that the ones the Father has chosen should be brought to glory. Jesus says in John chapter 10, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The Father will see to it that all the elect are redeemed, because he will see to it that his Son has a church. And the Son will see to it that all the elect are redeemed. He will see to it that his Father is glorified in the redeemed. So the priestly work of Christ in redemption 
is to accomplish the will of the Father. And there is no hint of uncertainty as to who the objects of Christ's saving grace are. And there's no hint of uncertainty concerning the work that Christ will do. He will do such a work that he loses none of them but raises them up. He gives them everlasting life and no one will snatch them from his hand. You know, the, the response so often to the very thing we're talking about tonight, to this definite atonement or particular redemption, is for people to say Jesus died for everyone and it's up to you to accept it. And so they can say Christ died to save everyone and the reason that everyone doesn't go to heaven is because not everyone accepted it. But as you listen to these passages, is that at all how redemption sounds? That Christ died to make salvation possible for everyone? And so it's possible that in the end not a single person believes? And that all the work of the Lord Jesus comes to absolutely nothing? And that the Christ has not a single worshiper or brother or sister? Well, not at all. The purpose for which Christ comes is to lose not one. The purpose for which Christ comes is to raise it up at the last day. The purpose for which Christ comes is to give everlasting life and see that none are ever snatched from his hand. Which is to say that Christ died on the cross not just for our reconciliation to purchase that, but he died on the cross to purchase the application of redemption, the gift of faith. So we cannot separate with this analogy that Christ died on the cross and there's the present and it's up for you to to open the present. No, it's all one together. Christ came for the purpose and with this glorious pledge that he will bring all of his people to glory. So this section of the canons ends by saying in Article 9, That this plan arising out of God's eternal love for his chosen ones from the beginning of the world to the present time has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future. The gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. And listen to this. As a result, the chosen are gathered into one, all in their own time. And there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood. A church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises him as her Savior who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride. What a comfort to call Christ our Savior. He hasn't come to make salvation possible, but he's come to do the Father's will. He hasn't come to save some, maybe someone, whoever, but he's come to save the ones the Father gave him. And he hasn't come to save them partway, but to lose not a single one of all the Father has given him. Is that your comfort tonight? Is that where you stake your life? Is that what gives you joy and confidence as you go forward into the world? That you've been brought into the community of the redeemed, part of the church that will praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ forever. You know, we get so focused upon ourselves, don't we? We turn inward. We look to ourselves for strength. We, we measure our security by how healthy we are, or how much money we have. Or The gospel turns our eyes to the Savior, Jesus. 
The father says to his elect, you see what I've given you? I haven't given to you just anyone. I've sent you my son. My son has received you from my hand. He's taken responsibility for your life. And he will never, ever let you go. So sing his praise. He loves you as a bridegroom loves his bride. And he will never let you go. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you for the full revelation of your word. We praise you that Christ speaks so plainly, so clearly, so emphatically. Because, Lord, we are given to doubts. Cast down our pride then. Destroy our human autonomy. And let us find our comfort in bowing to Christ and rejoicing. That we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.